What is up, everybody? It's William Collier again. This is episode six of Ground, a podcast from Cathedral Project. We have some exciting things to announce. Uh, first of all, like I said in the last episode, there is a free ebook available for those of you who are looking to start a ground gathering of your own and uh, to go ahead and get a faith gathering going without the need for an institution to hold that up. Uh, this ebook kind of describes the principles and the background of why we're taking this course of action the way that we are. Also includes a list of steps, very practical steps for you to get that faith gathering going on your own. Uh, Everything from how to invite people in the first place, to how to break the ice in a social setting, to how to plan the event, how to plan meals, uh, even um, some advice on how to establish a group spiritual practice. Uh, It's all there. There's even a love note to introverts in there. If you're an introvert listening to this and the idea of getting together with people somehow willingly, (laughs) regularly, uh, is just uh, a little bit scary or spooky for you, I completely understand. Uh, Just remember, we need that, man. We need that socialization. So there's a little love note to you in there, and I, I'm going to level with you on that, and, and I think you'll you'll chuckle a little at that. Anyway, so there's the ebook That's available, again, at cathedralproject.com. Uh, in the top nav under resources, you can find that free ground ebook, get downloaded, and get going right away. Uh, the other thing, the other resource that's available, another resource is uh, an, a book I've authored. It's it's just a guidebook. It's only about 26 or 27 pages long. It's called A Christian's Guide to Deconstruction. So if you're in this space of awakening and beginning to uh, kind of deconstruct the beliefs you've had for so long or feeling like you might be on the precipice of that, this could be a really good resource for you to just show you what that means. Um show you what it doesn't mean as well, and uh, to just give you some perspective. Uh, Again, this is aimed at Christians. So uh, if you're not a Christian, it might still be useful and fun for you to check this out. It's only $4.99. So we wanted to make this as accessible as early on to as many people as possible to our cost is not going to be a barrier to entry while also being able to support the efforts that we're making to, you know, begin to to continue to pursue mental, emotional, and spiritual health together as a a new kind of Christianity is emerging. So give that a look as well, again, under resources at cathedralproject.com in that top navigation. Okay, today's guest is one of my very best friends. He describes himself as an aspiring Buddhist. Uh, I met this guy a few years ago uh, because he randomly just moved to the same area of the country of Georgia that I lived in, and we had a mutual friend from back in the day in high school who hooked us up, and uh, we went over and took a little tour of their beautiful farmhouse one day, and uh, while I was looking around, um, I saw his little work desk had a statue of the Buddha on it. Now, this was like right on the heels of my spiritual awakening and beginning to see my Christianity as a more of a universal expression of faith. So I was very excited to meet somebody with that kind of a perspective, and I could tell that this was really a loving and compassionate person that I was talking with. He was just emanating that kind of energy. And we have just been fast friends ever since. Uh, and just, you know, we like you do, we go grab a beer and hang out at the pub and talk about existential crises and things like that. It's, it's beautiful. No, I, it, it, there, there, there's lots of positivity, but there's also just being friends and dealing with life together. He's, he's very real that way. So uh, today's topic of discussion 
that I chose for us, it's, it's kind of loosely about our obsession with meaning as the human species. So I hope you'll enjoy this talk between uh, an aspiring Buddhist and myself. So without further ado, please welcome with me to the podcast, Jackson Duncan. So, Jackson Duncan, my friend, with yes. us today. <laughs> How are Indeed. you, man? How you feeling? Oh, you know, uh, as I as I already shared with you, I'm feeling uh, panic and terror. <laughs> I've never done anything like this before. Uh, dude, you're going to be listened to by so few people. <laughs> this has just gotten going, you know, so don't well, worry about it. I mean, you know, I... I expend an enormous amount of my energy just trying to figure out what the hell normal behavior is <laughs> on a day-to-day yeah. basis. <laughs> Me too. The fact that anyone outside this room is going to listen to this <laughs> is enough to elicit panic and terror for me. So it's all good. Yeah. I get through it every other day. Yeah. I'll be fine. <laughs> just like <laughs> silently analyzing life at a level that the people around you really just don't even have a grid. Yeah, for <laughs> not a clue. <laughs> We're all doing it. We're all doing it. I take some comfort in that. Well, okay, so Jackson, we've known each other for a little while now. I was just going to give the folks a little background on how we became friends in the first place. How did that come to pass? What 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 happened? Um, we had a daughter out in out in Austin, Texas in uh March of 2019 and about a year later, uh you know, Things devolved in society and uh, in Austin, in particular. Uh, yeah, they were a little more extreme than average. I would, I would say, um, we we faced we faced a, a lot of animosity from our surrounding community um, within the city and within even within our own neighborhood. Yeah, uh, we were having some some challenges entering into our parenting journey. Yeah. And we we had sort of a light at the end of the tunnel. Our daughter was getting ready to start preschool, and then uh, the preschools shut down, and you couldn't go to the playground, and you couldn't have play dates. Yeah. And we this is just, COVID. This is COVID we're talking about. We here. were just kind of yeah. stuck. Uh, and, uh, you know, in addition to the, the parenting stuff, you know, we couldn't enter grocery stores or restaurants or anything like that. Um, so we made the decision to uh, get away from people was really <laughs> part of it, but get closer to um, some family and some lifelong friends that, yeah. that so that we'd have some, some help some of the time. Mm -hmm. um, Social our, distance yourself from Austin. Yeah, pretty mm -hmm. much. Yeah. Um, which was a city that we loved very dearly and, and felt like we had built uh, a nice little life. Yeah. Everyone's uh, was, moving there now. It was very sad. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's been moving there for forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, the local, the real locals, uh, you know, can't stand it. Yeah. But it was, it was wonderful. The, the time that we spent there was great. Yeah. Right up until that last little bit. Um, and unfortunately. I, I got to go. Oh yeah, you do. It's, I, I'm sure now it's back to being a, a vibrant, wonderful city and a, a welcoming place for all and a, and a place where it's perfectly <laughs> acceptable to give a middle finger to authority. Yeah. Yeah. But not at that point. Not at that no, time. No, no. No, no, no. no. 
Yeah. Uh, so Jackson shares some of the anti-establishment sort of bents that I have. Um, and the stance that he and his wife took on COVID, while, you know, it wasn't an intolerant stance, it was just different. It was it was more on the like, hey, let's step back and be a little more objective about what the powers that be might be actually saying and doing here. And the panic that ensued is what is what Jackson is describing there. That sucks. It just sucks. Indeed. That was a horrible time for some. It was people. a rough time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you landed out here um, because you become one of my best friends, man. Amen. That right back at you. Yeah. You uh, you brought us eggs. I know you. I remember yeah. you brought us a giant basket of eggs and said these were your leftovers for the day. Yeah. And I think you vehemently apologized for the poop on some of them. And um, I was like, you know, that's okay, man. I was just, I was going to eat the insides, really. That was all I was interested in anyways. So, Jackson and Bree started the homestead as well. And so we were kind of learning together. And uh, for the listener, if you're unaware... Eggs have poop on them a lot of times. They sure do. You know, a yeah, lot of the they, time. They, a lot of the time. And you might not have wanted to know that, but now you do. The things you learn, <laughs> you know, the more you know when you're a homesteader. <laughs> yes. So I know that your wife, Bree, works in um, birth and, and does, deals a lot with um, the, the whole birth process. Um, I also have heard you allude to a pretty traumatic birth experience that you had that you're, well, I guess your mother had when you came into the world. So why don't you just tell us how you came to be? How did you come into the world? Uh, how I got into the world, uh, <laughs> like the rest of us, I <laughs> similar. Well, not, not quite. Uh, okay. uh, it, was, oh, it was, it was a bumpy ride entering into all of this for me. Um, my, my, it's really interesting, actually, it kind of, the things that the universe, you know, does so that you remain on the path you're supposed to be on. It's really interesting how it all ties together. Yeah. Um, yeah. My mother had an insanely traumatic uh, pregnancy, birth and postpartum mm. uh, with me specifically. Yeah. Um, she found out late second, early third trimester that uh, her husband, my biological father, had malignant melanoma, mm. and uh, which, he, which he eventually uh, succumbed to while I was still kind of in the baby stage. Um, wow. And wow. when I was born, uh, my, it was a scheduled C-section, and uh, my best guess, everything I know today, is just that they, they either guessed wrong... Or uh, they scheduled it at uh, at forty weeks rather than forty two weeks, which for the for the listeners at home is full term gestation for a human yeah, being. Yeah. Um, and the the lungs are the last major organ system to finish developing, and I just mm. don't think my lungs were prepared to breathe air. Oh wow. Um, so I spent the first two two or three weeks, uh, you know, hooked up to a bunch of tubes in an incubator box. Gosh. Uh, and. Um, it was it was a bumpy ride for her early and yeah. early in my life, um, and it, you know, it it sounds super traumatic for me as well. Um, but you don't remember it. I don't remember it. <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't have any memories of my biological yeah. father. I know that my older brother um, does, and and I don't know. I, I'm sure that has to have uh, 
played a more significant role in his life than it has in mine. Yeah. It all kind of worked out okay for me. My mother remarried a few years later yeah. to to the man she's still with today. That's the the only father I've ever known. And and we sort of inherited an extra family from all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. We were we were living in the same city as my biological father's parents and oldest brother, and they had a, a huge impact uh, on, on helping to raise us in the early parts of our childhood. And they, those grandparents are the ones, that, um, that were our main connection to church, um, in the yeah. early years. Okay. Um, but, uh, there's, I, it's, it's strange. There are people that are born into this world that don't have anybody that really cares about them and yeah. <laughs> loves them. And I have three full families they yeah. are all so loving and caring and supportive. Wow. And um, the the family that we inherited, I mean, I, from my earliest memories at four or five years old, I mean, there just has never been a moment where I've been in the presence of, of anyone in that family that would be considered my step family, really, yeah. where I didn't feel like a full member of the family. I never yeah. felt like, you know, adopted or married into it or whatever they... they all, all three sides of my family, the extended family, the grandparents, the aunts, the uncles, the cousins, I mean, just um, incredibly blessed to yeah, have that's great. Uh, all of those, those people in my life. Um, and and I've, always, I've always felt that way. Um, I, I recognize that it's a big deal. You yeah. know, there's a lot of people who don't even know one or both of their parents. And um, mm. I, I feel like I've had a two-parent home my whole life and three great families, uh, as w- you know, in addition to the other things, the teachers, the coaches, the friends, all of that, that are yeah. super supportive. That's um, cool, man. But it's interesting, you know, I, I talk about the, the universe kind of th- taking you on the path. Um, from that uh, to meeting my wife and falling in love with her and her journey that she's been on, eventually led her into the birth world and she became very passionate about um pregnancy birth and postpartum which was such a story of generational (laughs) trauma for for me coming into the world the way that i did and part of my feeling like i've uh, found meaning the times that i've found meaning in life have been in that space, Mm. um, trying to do whatever I can to support other people who are going through that phase of their life, whether it's a a colleague at work, whether it's people that live around us, you know, Mm. even if it's something as simple as making a big pot of soup, you know, and taking it over and hanging out and chatting for a while, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but the, you know, probably the peak experience of my life, uh, I would have to say, and this is this is no disrespect to my beautiful son, Auden, um, but uh, when my daughter Isla was born out in Austin, um, I just can't imagine there has ever been a more peaceful, beautiful, perfect birth experience. Mm. Um, we we our photographer after the fact actually broke down in tears and told us that she had been preparing to leave that space and she wasn't going to be doing birth photography anymore because it had just become yeah. such an energy suck. Uh, and she said that our birth 
reaffirmed for her what was possible with wow. birth and she's continued to do it. Um, wow. our, I actually got to catch Isla, uh, which I was not expecting. <laughs> wow. Um, Brie That's had amazing. talked for years about, uh, you know, her, her little Rosie, the riveter sort of mentality, you know, <laughs> wonder woman sort of thing. Like I'm going to reach down and I'm going to pull my own baby out. And, um, the time got here and, uh, our midwife out in Austin, who is still to this, it will forever be one of the most impactful people that I have ever come across in my life. Uh, GB Kalsa, she, you know, she let Brie know that it's, it's almost time. We're, we're just about there. How, how do you want to do it? You want, you want me to do it? Do you want to do it? And she just looked up at me and went, do you want to do it? <laughs> and I was, I, you know, and I was like, uh, I, uh, Sure. And so, uh, you know, GB got out of her chair and stopped knitting for a few minutes and um, stood over my shoulder and kind of talked me through how it was going to happen and how it was going to work. And uh, I got to do that. And it was just the most insane, beautiful thing. It it, there's it have to be. There's, uh, you know, we were we're very particular about first hands. And you know, I got it to some extent why that was a thing. And, and then it happened and my hands were the first hands. And I'm telling you, it's, it is tangible. You can feel the transfer of energy. Mm. It is like, it's like every bit of unconditional love that has ever been shown towards you by anyone you've ever come across family, friends, friends of the family, whatever it is, you're just thrusting into that being the moment you lay hands on them. Man, Um, I'm jealous of that, man. And it, it was, it was so like otherworldly. Yeah. Um, and, and Brie has, you know, she has, she has described, um, in both, both births, the experience of going through labor as being somewhat of a psychedelic sort of experience. Mm-hmm. Like you mm-hmm. are in another realm entirely. Yeah. And obviously I didn't go through that, but for a moment there, um, it, it hits you. Yeah. Like, um, that's crazy for me the whole time where, you know, she's off in another realm. It was, it was really like we, we've touched on, meditation quite a bit. Um, it felt like a full day long meditation. Yeah. Oh, this, this is what it's supposed to be like when you, this is really being in the present moment and really focusing on what matters. Wow. And you're just in that space from start to finish the whole day. And then man, um, when, when you do finally, you know, get to that moment and place hands on that that newborn infant. Yeah. Um, it was, it was, it was like something from another realm, another planet, another universe, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and that, that for me, being able to just be in a supporting role, Mm -hmm. um, to sort of heal some of those wounds, um, 
from my side and from her side, um, mm-hmm. because there's there's hardly anyone in in America today who doesn't have some elements of that in yeah. their in their family lineage now. Yeah. Um, it's it it it's one of the things that I point to as a truly meaningful thing that I have done. Mm. Um, and it's it those those moments are few and far between. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know that we're supposed to have that many moments like that or they wouldn't feel so special. Yeah. Um, but I, I do feel like that experience, you know, pointed me in the direction of this is what you're supposed to be doing. Like you're supposed to be focusing on the people and the things that really, really matter yeah. and soaking up every moment of it and, and enjoying it to the fullest. Mm. Um, and so, wow. um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because in, in high school, I didn't date anyone. Uh, I played sports growing up. Um, I had this idea in my head that I was going to go somewhere, uh, for athletics mm-hmm. and I didn't know where it was going to be. Mm-hmm. So I, that makes I, one of us, I knew I wasn't going to <laughs> knew that for sure. <laughs> um, and so, um, it, it, it was weird. Like the, um, the anti-establishment part of me, I specifically did not want to play at this baseball complex around here. That's kind of, you know, world renowned for, mm-hmm. for amateur high school baseballers, uh, yeah. East Cobb. Mm-hmm. That was to me, you know, I viewed them as you know, the Death Star or something. Um, and so I, I played on this team in the summers um, late in high school out of California. And because of that, all the connections that my coach had were very far away from home. Yeah. And so I was, uh, had to grapple with, you know, do I really want to go up to Boston in the freezing cold when I'm a person from the edge of the swamps of South Georgia that has trouble functioning when the temperature is <laughs> below 60 degrees, you know, do I really want to go out to California? Do I really want to go to Hawaii? You know, these places that are super far away. And I decided I did not. Mm. And, um, once I, I decided I was going to just stay close to home and, um, eventually, you know, decided I just wanted to have fun while I was in college instead of being, you know, a baseball player first and and yeah. then a person second. Right. Um, I, I opened up the possibility and the idea of dating someone and Brie is the person I started dating. Wow. <laughs> and, and then the universe led us down this path of healing this, uh, this piece of me and, and, yeah. um, finding someone who led me to care so deeply yeah. for this thing that, you know, it would, it would be very shocking to have learned when I was 12 years old that I was going to be as passionate <laughs> as I am about pregnancy yeah. and birth and postpartum, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah. I am. And, yeah. and I feel like cool. it was all, it was all for a reason. Yeah. Um, so it's beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so yeah, this covers us up to now, becoming friends. And uh, I would just like to know, 
Jackson, I've described you as an aspiring Buddhist per your request. <laughs> Thank uh, you. You're welcome. I don't want to do a disservice to the actual practicing Buddhists of the oh, world. Oh, gosh. Uh, so. <laughs> Man, if, if Buddhism just produces good human beings, then uh, you're, you're a testament to that. Well, yeah, thanks, I, I, would, I would believe it based on your example. Okay, so what I have on the outline, but I'm going to diverge a little bit from it. Don't be freaked out. Don't worry. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a softball here. Um, what was it that drew you to Buddhism, and when do you think that that started to happen in your life? Ooh, um, I, I don't have a, a particular thing. I, I would say we kind of left the formal church world uh, when I was about 10. Okay. Um, we, we moved up from South Georgia. We were in a smaller town down in South Georgia, and we were pretty um, regular attendees at a, at a church down there with my grandparents. Um, and we moved up here, and to, to my parents' credit, they, they tried to keep that going. We tried to find a place here. Yeah. Uh, my brother is a few years older than me, uh, and we, we went to a service one day where the, the topic of the sermon was, uh, you know, it was essentially that, uh, the gays were all going to burn in hell and there mm. was nothing they could do about it. And mm. we walked out and I think he was old enough to know, know about that more than me and yeah. have some friends that were maybe already, you know, clearly in that community and everything. And he looked at my mom and said, yeah, I don't want to go back. And yeah. that was it. That's the last church service that we went to. Yeah. And not um, exactly warm fuzzies. Though, not so, exactly yeah. warm fuzzies and loving no. and forgiving and compassionate and no, all of that. No. Um and so my mom was was uh sort of of the of the idea that, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could just learn a little bit about all of the different, you know, religions and philosophies of the world. Wow. And it was at a time where that wasn't as easy as it is today yeah. with, with Google and all of the, uh, all of the information readily available yeah. to all of us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, from then on, it was just sort of a, an exploration. Yeah. Um, and you read a little bit, you, you, once, a, once you get older and, and things like podcasts start coming out yeah. and all of that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, you just, you gravitate towards what resonates with you. And that, that seemed to, uh, hit the mark for me more yeah. than anything else. And that's awesome. It reminds me of like, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but it reminds me of like trying to find good music back in the day before the internet, Ugh. you know, like when I had to go to ambush skate shop down in, <laughs> in, in Kennesaw to find my music, man. And, and if you weren't careful, you could spend that $14 on something that was atrocious trash. Yeah. You and, had to have guidance and there's no way out of it. Yeah, I mean, if, <laughs> no. If you don't like it, you know, tough cookies. It's in that little that little booklet forevermore. Yeah, it's that permanent the booklet. Record. Yeah. yeah, you didn't want them to scratch. So I guess like the equivalent of ambush for religion would have been like the religion and self help section at Borders or Books a Million or something, <laughs> you know. But you didn't want to be seen there by all the Christians everywhere, all around you. You know that that was you. You had to really take a step out to oh, yeah. to be. Uh, you know, thinking outside the box of like a more Western Christianity back then. So kudos on your mom for actually like doing something revolutionary, I, I would think, for her time. That's really oh, yeah. cool. Uh, there was, it was a, you know, you, you, 
one of the one of the principles, you know, we talk about yin and yang. I mean, we had we had a lot of family that was deeply religious and very involved in the church. Yeah. And and our our folks were were not that they they were, you know, heathens or anything like that. Yeah. But they very openly told us, like, oh, you know. There's other ways to think about that. Um, that's not a set rule mm, that that mm. we that we have to all follow. Yeah, um, man, I wish there was more of that. that yeah, so um, we we weren't pushed in any particular direction, and and we kind of had had the freedom to, uh, like I said, kind of explore and make up our own minds. Which is, to your point, especially for where we grew up geographically. Pretty rare. Yeah. Pretty yeah, rare to yeah. find in these parts. That is really cool. Gosh, I'm really like, I guess the butterfly effect, looking back at what led you to where you are right now, I'm so glad she made that decision. That's mm-hmm. that's super cool, man. Wow. Okay. So what else happened, man? You've got, you've got your, your kind of what led you to Buddhism and the way that your parents kind of handled religion and stuff. I, I know that you guys moved uh, up further north in the state. Uh, actually, I found out that you guys went to high school with some people that I knew around the time I was in high school as well. Not the same school, but oh yeah, yeah, um, we we did. I mean, it was more like moving to another country when we moved up here. Yeah, okay. coming from a small town in South Georgia that was uh, not terribly affluent and didn't have a whole lot going on and was very diverse. And you know, somebody asks you to come over and play after school, like you have no clue what you're getting into. It is a total crapshoot. Yeah. It could be a mansion on the golf course. It could be a trailer on a dirt road. It could be in the projects. Like you have no idea what you are committing to. Yeah. And you, you know, we move up here to the, the, I, I call it the monoculture. Oh um, yeah. Somebody asks you to come over and play. I mean, you can, pr- you, you ask them like three questions. You can pretty much draw out the blueprint of their home. Oh yeah. It, right, right there. Same building. In school. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What neighborhood you in? Uh, you know, do you have a basement? What, where are the stairs located in relation to the front door? I mean, you can pretty much map it yeah, out from you know, there. You already know. And there's no wondering, you know, are they going to have TVs or is their air conditioning going to be working? Like, are they going to have snacks? Like everybody's got all the same shit. You, <laughs> you know exactly what you're getting into. It's, yeah. you know, it's, and, and, uh, I, I, I feel, I loved the time that I spent in South Georgia for that reason. Yeah, like that sounds I a lot loved, more fun. Yeah. You, you, much more interesting. It was great. You, you, <laughs> That I feel, I almost feel bad for some of the kids that I, that I love very dearly. From from here, from this area, yeah. Because I know there's no way for them to know on a personal level that people live differently from them. They never experienced it. Yeah. They never saw it in right. real life. It's it's a movie to them, you yeah. know. Um, and I, I was very truth. grateful to have to have had the chance to uh, get that perspective of being able to see, you know, wow, there's a lot of people who live uh, much, much better than we do. And they have way more, m- more than we do. And wow, there's a lot of people who have so much less than us yeah. and live totally different from us in that way. Um, and it was, uh, it was eye-opening moving up here and like just seeing that they don't have the same realization here yeah, no, in, a lot of, no. in a lot of instances. 
Um, everybody's in a similar neighborhood in the same socioeconomic bracket and everything. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of variation there, but not Mm -hmm. much, Mm -hmm. not very much. Yeah. The area that we came up in, Jackson's kind of referring to, it's, it's this highly transient, um, like professional neighborhood clusters of, of, of suburbia, Metro Atlanta. So that what that what he's saying is accurate. I mean, like you you had a pretty narrow field of the kind of people you're going to be rubbing shoulders with, and as a result, church people wound up looking very similar. You know, it's because mm-hmm. it, that narrows the um, the filters of personality types to an even finer point. Where now we all have Christians who are white professional whatever living in Metro Atlanta and. I like your childhood more. What I'm hearing about here. And, well, and don't <laughs> get me just, wrong. I mean, there were fun. there were positives to moving up here too. There's no question. Right. Um, yeah. There's definitely stability. You know, the the school systems had way more resources and way more flexibility. Yeah. You know, for for people who were struggling and needed needed a little more help and needed to go at a slower pace, and for people who were excel excelling and and needed something more to challenge them, you know, there was a, there was a lot more wiggle room there as well. There were were positives there. The, the town I came from when, when we moved the, the graduation rate from kids who enrolled in ninth grade was 50%. Half the kids did not make it to graduation that entered high school. Not, not all because of, you know, horrible reasons, but you know, but no reason for me to go any further. I'm going to work on the farm. And I already know yeah, it. Right. My parents already know it. Everybody already knows it, you know? So <laughs> yeah. what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go learn what I need to learn over here. Yeah. Um, it wasn't all, you know, drugs and teen right. pregnancies and stuff and like that. And there's beauty to that too, but that there kind was, of cultural There was some of that. Yeah. Um, and you come up here, that was, that was another, talk about eye-opening stuff. Down there, I mean, it was pretty rare for the for kids to make it out and go to like a big established college. Yeah. And everybody kind of knew which ones were going to make it. And we you know, you come up here, I'm in like 6th grade and and the teachers like, "Oh, you know, um we got to do da 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 cuz you know, everybody's going to college." And I was like <laughs> everybody and I, and I look around the room like nobody else is giggling like I'm like, "Oh my god, all of these people think they're going to college." And wouldn't you know it? They were they right. <laughs> yeah. There was like, you know, one or two here and there yeah. that didn't, but like yeah. it, they were totally right. And I was like, wow, this is like yeah. such, it just, just that, just the teachers believing you're going to make it, yeah. it makes such a huge difference for yeah. the kids. And you see that. Yeah. Um, because there really are a lot of instances where like, even the teachers are like, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know about this probably, not, probably not going to work out. <laughs> you might just want to go ahead and get a job somewhere now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You can read uh, between the lines a little bit there. Yeah. That's funny, man. Yeah. All right. So from high school to college and meeting Bree, you can give us a little brief summary of how that worked out. How, how was, how was it meeting her? Where did you meet her? I actually met her in high school. Um, Met her through a through a friend of mine that uh, drove me to school for a year. I'd known her for, for forever since middle school, um, but she she was one of the uh, one of the goody goodies that never missed a day and yeah. had good grades. And she got a parking spot junior year. Yeah, gymnast. And, 
at that no, point? No, no, no. Um, I think she was a dancer, like ballet oh, okay. sort of. I knew it was something um, like that. I can't remember exactly. But uh, she <laughs> actually, another kid in the neighborhood found out she had a parking spot and asked her if she could drive him to school. And she's talking about this, you know, before French class starts. And uh, I was like, oh, man, I'd love to stop riding the bus. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> she was like, oh my gosh, I will totally pick you up every day oh, and drive boy. you to school oh, so that I can say someone else already asked me because I really don't want to drive this other kid <laughs> to school, right? And so, you know, I became really good friends with her, uh, you know, developed feelings for her as one naturally does, you yeah, know. of course. And then uh, those those feelings were very clearly not returned. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> hey, hey, totally okay. Um, but eventually um, got introduced to Brie sort of through that little circle of friends. And then um, she was uh, she was sitting next to me at a football game, and it started raining, and I offered to share my umbrella with her, and we got to chat for like an hour during a lightning delay and got, and became, you know, friends and then realized we had all these other mutual friends and started hanging out together. And I actually became, uh, their calculus tutor, her, yeah. the girl that drove me to school, Ooh, a couple of other girls. Okay. One of, one of them is now like the godmother of my children. Like we're still good friends with all of them. Oh, that's cool. Man. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's how we got introduced. By the way, if you're, if you're a, a kid in high school, highly recommended, um, much, much easier to be introduced to pretty girl's parents as the, the calculus tutor versus the love interest. <laughs> yeah, man. So then when we started dating, you know, it's like, that was yeah. much, you know, they're like, well, who are you? You're the math nerd? Sweet. Yeah, that works. That kid's not threatening at all. He's not doing anything inappropriate with anybody. Like, uh, yeah. works for me. Date away. <laughs> He's going places. What time are you guys going to be up? 3 a.m.? Works for me. Sounds good. I mean, he's a calculus what's tutor. What's, po what's possibly what going yeah. to happen? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a pretty hot story, though, man. Just dating the tutor. Good <laughs> Lord. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. Okay, so you guys got married through a series of events, end up in Austin, and then through the COVID, sh just ridiculous amount of difficulty and awfulness, moved to Georgia. And how did ho how did homesteading go? To get back to poop on eggs, how did uh, how did the homesteading go for you guys? What did you learn there? Well, um, it was really there were really beautiful aspects to it. Yeah. The main lesson that we learned was we did it at the wrong season of life. Yeah, uh, which is with, very possible to do. Yeah. With a small child and then uh, in the midst of it, you know, another one on the way. Um, we we realized you probably need to wait until your kids are, if not old enough to help with some of mm -hmm. the chores, mm -hmm. at least old enough to to be able to tell them, you know, go away and yeah. entertain yourself for a while so I can cut the grass that takes three hours to cut, much less, you know, work in the garden, yeah. take care, you know, clean Build out the coop. chicken yeah, coop yeah. and all of that stuff. Um, so it it was not the right time in our lives to do yeah, it, but yeah. we loved certain aspects of it. Uh, and I, I feel like it's not out of the question that we'll revisit it at yeah. some point in the future. Yeah. Um, you know, the the woods around our house became basically my church. I mean, that's yeah. about as close as I 
can come to uh, to feeling like I'm in the presence of the Lord or the universe yeah, or whatever yeah. you want to call it. I've, some of my best friends in the world today still are trees. Um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a tree hugger, not in a metaphorical sense, in a literal sense. Yeah. I hug trees because I think it is good for me and good for them. Yeah. Um, and I, I... You're right. I, it's the only time in my life I've been able to establish like a regular meditation practice. Yeah. One of the reasons why I would say... I'm not a real Buddhist. Um, you know, I had yeah. probably six months where I was taking a walk in the woods with our dog Izzy most days yeah. and uh, sitting on a fallen pine, going over a creek and being able to listen to all the nature sounds and everything for 10 or 15 minutes and then yeah. walk back home. And it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I remember getting introduced to you guys and coming out and checking out your uh, your house, which was so cool. And I remember passing by your little desk where you were, you had been working and seeing a uh, statue of the Buddha and thinking, oh man, I want to talk with this guy more. Because at that point, I actually, that was like right around the time of my biggest spiritual awakening I've had in my life, you know? So I thought it was so crazy that we got introduced right then. And so many, so many good and positive things sprung from that time in life. Um, but yeah, I... It, Hearing all of this and your history, it's it's not a surprise to me that you guys wound up trying to do the homesteading thing and connecting with nature um, because of this sort of universal oneness that I think a lot of us around the world are starting to recognize right now. Yes. And um, it's a beautiful thing. So I, the reason that I say that to bring us to that is because... I wonder for you, we're talking about naming this talk Obsession with Meaning. Now we've gotten to a point where we can kind of drill down into what we believe and um, what it is that's driven religion, spirituality in general, and what led us to where we are. So meaning. Uh, I remember I sent you the outline possibility for this, and you said, well, I think I've been obsessed with meaning since I was little, and I, know, I think a lot of us have. Um what are just your initial thoughts that arise when we talk about applying meaning to everything you've been through, to pursuing Buddhism, and to where you are now? Whew. Um, well, you, one of the one of the questions that you asked, uh, you know, that you told me we were going to address at one point was, you know, do you feel like it's been good for humanity or or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one, you know. My my uh, elementary level understanding of Buddhism that I'm trying to you know continue progressing in, uh, you're not really supposed to assign good and bad yeah. to to ideas and things like that. So I think it's been a little bit of both. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have to have balance to everything. If if everything means like if everything is universally important. And the fate of the universe rests on this next thing that you're going to say and this next decision you're going to make. Mm. You know, that's crippling anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and if nothing means anything at all, and, you know, it doesn't matter if, you know, you get fired from your job or you screw over the people that you care about the most or, you know, you jump off a bridge, well, that's crippling depression. Yeah. So you have to, you have to find a... A, a balanced position on the continuum somewhere yeah. in between. Yeah. Um, so it's, I don't know that it's necessarily good or bad. Um, yeah. But I, I, I would say 
it's caused challenges for me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and I feel like in 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 the society that we exist within today, mm-hmm. it's very difficult for people. Um, our our education system, our curriculum, you know, basically lets you know that meaning is is doing something that will get you into the history books and people yeah. will be learning about you and your wonderful deeds for centuries to come you know yeah um their meaning is not to be derived in in very basic mundane quotidian things mm-hmm. um and and so not everyone is going to make it into the history books mm. and the unfortunate part for me i feel like in today's society is even if you just want to find meaning in the mundane, quotidian things, it's become so hard. Yeah. I mean, I feel like virtually every facet of our society is set up to make it an uphill battle for us to be able to just enjoy the present moment and the mm. people that we're around. Um, it's it's this constant struggle to you know, not be focusing your attention on all the different things that are trying to distract you and, and, uh, compete for your attention. Yeah. It's, uh, the battle to make enough money of day in and day out. It's, it's, you know, um, two generations ago, one person could have a full-time job and afford the roof over your head, the, the transportation to and from work, the clothes, the food, everything. One generation ago, both people had to go get a full-time job. Our generation, both people pretty much have to have a full-time job, and you're expected to have side hustles and turn your hobbies into money. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm terrified. What, what's what's my kid's generation? They're just going to yeah. plug them in when they turn 18 and unplug <laughs> them at 75? Like, how, how's it going to work? It's starting to feel kind of like that in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I think that with everything you just described... It feels like, uh, and I don't know that you could say this with any definitive um, sort of entity or sort of responsible party, but it does feel like there is some sort of a campaign at place against meaning, or at least against uh, a life that is fulfilled uh, in finding its own meaning. I was just talking with my son the other day about this, that you know, our own, just, just, just pursuing our own health right now, just health itself is so difficult to do. You you have opportunities at every corner to ruin your health, to, to harm yourself so easily. It's just so easily. It, it feels, it feels intentional, you know? It does. Every, same, same thing we just talked about. Uh, it feels like pretty much every facet of our society is set up to be counterproductive to human health, even even including you know we we have a whole segment of our of our uh, you know pro- population and industry <laughs> that's supposed to be healthcare, and it doesn't even feel like they are really <laughs> focused on human health. It feels like most of what that industry does is running counter 
yeah. to, to human. I'm sorry. You're going to have a little E box for the language and you're <laughs> going to have a Rogan banner and I'm going to be the most decorated, the most decorated member of your podcast ever. Oh, uh, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. You're, we're going to get, we're going to get shadow banned for sure for, <laughs> for all this. No, that's what I love about podcasts. Thank God we can still talk openly here. I mean, it feels like you know, you have to self-censor for some agenda if you really are yeah. worried about that. We're not going to worry about that here. You know, but it it's just that it doesn't feel like there's anybody who's terribly concerned with that. Yeah. Everything is stress, 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 mm-hmm. uh, dwelling on the past, focus, you know, anxious about the future. Yeah. It, it's it, the, the moment to moment experience that we're having, I just don't feel like is, is how it was intended to work. Yeah. You know, it's, um, we, we, we name every, you know, we've come up with names for everything. And Mm -hmm. I I believe homo sapiens sapiens means wise, wise man. Mm. And I got to tell you, like, after we, you know, cause our own extinction, which it seems, <laughs> it seems is what we're headed towards. Um, hey, there's, there's good stuff coming, guys. Yeah, yeah, Silver we'll, lining. We'll, we'll get around to it. Um, you know, if there is another apex species after us that is writing their own history books, I just feel like wisdom is going to be very far down on the list of defining yeah. characteristics yeah. of our species. That's a good point. You know, I mean, like... Um, you know the bees and the flowers have been around since uh, what the uh, right after the extinction event that took out the dinosaurs. That's when we got deciduous forest with with flowering trees and shrubs and everything. I don't think in all that time the bees have done anything to try and get a one up on the flowers and and harm them. And right. I don't think the flowers have done that to the bees. Mm. Meanwhile. We're, we're as a species, you know, what are the things we have to have that we know we can't exist without? We need land to walk on and, you know, forage for food on or hunt Mm -hmm. for animals Mm -hmm. on. We need fresh water. We need air to breathe. We can't breathe underwater. Uh, And, you know, maybe sunshine. Uh, what, What have we done with all of our technology and all of our quote unquote wisdom? We've poisoned virtually every square inch of land, air and water that we have. And we're actively, you know, now attempting to block out the sun. We are actively working against all of the really obvious basic things that we have to have yeah. that we're supposed to be coexisting yeah. with. Yeah. The other species don't do that. Right. You know? Right. I, I feel like I feel like if we could rename ourselves, you know, whatever the the Latin word is for destruction, that would probably be what should go after mm. Homo mm-hmm. um, in our in our description <laughs> of our species. You know. Goodness gracious! Yeah, no, I think you're right. It, there was a, a Taoist monk named Monk Yun Ru. Actually, he's still with us, and um, very very cool perspectives from from this man. But um, his opinion is that where we really where we really took a wrong turn in an evolutionary sense is horticulture because we started to draw dividing lines around what's mine and what's yours. And we started to control the flow of nature 
uh, in a way that wasn't natural. Um, that's where monoculture cropping comes from. Mm -hmm. And if you extrapolate it out to where we are now, that's where glyphosate raining down from the clouds themselves gets into our water and into our bloodstreams. And if you're not aware of what glyphosate is, it's basically Roundup. We yeah. have we have impoverished our soil so much and used so much of this horrible chemical that now it's it's in our it's in our blood. Yeah, and uh, if if you want to if you want to tie that to some spiritual or or Buddhist principle, by the way, I think I think that's having having explored you know all of the major religions a little bit. Um, <laughs> I think my first issue with Christianity or the Bible is yeah. in Genesis one. I believe it says that basically the role of humans is to claim dominion over mm. the earth, not mm -hmm. to nurture and care for it as it right. nurtures and cares for us, but to uh, dominate it in subdue. some fashion. Subdue yeah. is one of the words, yeah. Uh, so I have, I take issue with that. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, it, the, the issue there is the isolation, right? Yeah. It's not an ecosystem. We're, we're trying to make sure one species can dominate what is supposed to be a thriving ecosystem made up of a virtually infinite number of yeah. characters yeah. from other crops mm -hmm. to things that we label as as weeds to the insects and the you know bacteria and protozoa in the dirt like we the the role of glyphosate is to remove competition from the ecosystem so that that one species can can thrive and uh i believe it's the i believe it's the second law of thermodynamics uh you the the more you increase isolation the more you increase chaos mm. um it it's it's mm. not good for us I, we are we are meant to be interdependent beings with everything else on the planet mm. and the more you isolate the you know the more things go crazy and it requires more and more of those inputs yeah to make the system work yeah mm. the the uh the crops eventually make it to a point where you know they can't really thrive anymore without the help of that that input which is you know that's the goal of the corporation selling the product yeah um they don't they don't necessarily disclose that to, <laughs> to, to the poor farmers, uh, Never. when they, when they start them down that path. But, um, yeah. thankfully there, it seems that there are a lot of farmers, uh, waking up to mm. more sort of the, uh, the Zach Bush sort of mentality. Yes. Thank God that for it, Zach Bush. That, amen. Um, yeah, that please follow him by the way, go it, find him. It follow is, him. it is supposed to be a symbiotic relationship between all of the different players in the ecosystem. And when it is, what you find is we get what we need from the crops and we get the food and the energy and everything. And it actually adds to the, the healthy arable mm. soil that we can grow future food in versus yeah. what you find after a really short amount of time in these places where they just spray stuff to high heaven, it turns into dust. You know, yeah. there's nothing, there's nothing there to hold water anymore. Yeah. Uh, the, the soil it dies. There, there's nothing yeah. there to make it a living ecosystem anymore. I remember hearing a, a one, I think it was from, um, kiss the ground, I believe is the name of the documentary. And, Narrated by Woody Harrelson, by the way, of all, <laughs> of all people. <laughs> Love that guy's voice. Um, but 
one of the scientists or researchers at the beginning of the film held up a handful of soil. And she said, in a handful of healthy soil, there are more microorganisms alive and functioning and and performing various different roles than human beings who have ever lived on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. So to apply all of this to what you're saying, as a, as, as a species who calls itself so wise, so much of our plight up until now has been a bull in a china shop who, that has not been paying attention to the effects that its actions are having on the planet around it that it can see, let alone the things it can't see, these microorganisms. This is a vital part of our planet's survival is having healthy soil. And that's why we keep coming back to this, you know, with people like Zach Bush. Well, and, and you know, I don't know how, how many people recognize what percentage of us, what we consider the human being, is actually those other things. We're significantly more bacteria and virus. We, we are... We, we have very few cells within us that you can just call uniquely human being cells. Mm-hmm. We're made up primarily of a zillion other species of things that, mm-hmm. to your point, we can't see. And unfortunately, uh, living in a, a materialist, reductionist, scientific mm-hmm. society, mm-hmm. if you can't see it and touch it and measure it, I mean, it it's it might as well not exist. And that's, that's what we're, seems to be where, what we aim for. Yeah. It seems like, you know, at the end of our skin, at the very tip, the edge of where our skin stops, that's where us stops and everything else is outside of that. Yeah. And yet we, you just illustrated beautifully that that's not even true inside which, our skin. Which it, and, and that part isn't true either. Yeah. There, you, you cannot describe any organism and what it is doing without also describing the surrounding environment that it's operating in. Yeah. You know, yep. you're, you're sitting there right now. Why can we say that? Because there's a chair underneath you. If you're doing the exact same thing you're doing right now, we'd be calling it levitating or yeah. squatting or exercising. If you were doing it at the bottom of the pool, we'd yep. be saying you're drowning. Yep. If you were doing it in a hole in the ground, you know, we'd be saying you were buried alive. If you were... Yep. Out in space, you know, you'd be dead. <laughs> dead. Uh, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, you just reminded me to work out because if I was sitting here without this chair underneath me, I would be shaking violently. This quad would just be, you could fry an egg on that thing. Uh, so, okay, bringing this back to the meaning that we've been talking about, you know, it, to me, when I was talking just a second ago about our unawareness or our bull in the china shop nature, to me, it feels like meaning... Uh, is something we've tried to impose upon the world around us when it's actually something that is already just the 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 flow of all things. Yeah. It's already flowing that way, you know? So I think that sometimes what we do is being somewhat egocentric as a species, we're trying to turn all of that meaning around toward us. <laughs> yes. You know, and put ourselves at the center of all things when... Uh, we would do well to remember our place in this universe. I mean, the human chapter of history, I once heard it described, not to take up too much time with this, but that if you put all of the timeline of the universe out in front of you, and you did it like on a calendar, and you said like January 1st is the Big Bang, and then you went all the way through 
the formation of the stars and galaxies and everything that leads to Earth and everything that leads to the dinosaurs and everything that finally leads to human beings, we're like 11.59 p.m. December 31st. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We really need to we really need to learn our place in this world. So there's a quote that I wanted to uh, bring up and just see what it spurns in you and what what it's what it spurns in me uh, as we kind of toss it back and forth. But there's a beautiful Zen Buddhist um, monk. I think he's a British dude. His name's Alan Watts. Yeah, love listening to this guy talk. He's uh, one of my favorite kind of newer teachers and. Um, it's, I'm going to just summarize what he said. He was talking about meaning, like we are now. And he just said, nature is a poet. Absolutely. Um, and what do the poets do? They try their best to slow down, notice the things around them, and describe them in, in new ways that they have their their sort of like comedians, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. less funny comedians, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and I, you know, I, I do my best not to have gurus. Um, but yeah. <laughs> one, one of the people, uh, that I, I have resonated with, uh, Terrence McKenna, uh, mm. he says something similar. Nature always seems to, uh, err on the side of novelty, mm. you know, that we don't, uh, we don't have an extinction event and then the earth work really hard to do whatever it has to do to bring back the dinosaurs. Yep. No, we, yeah. we go, Hey, let's try something new and beautiful and mm. see how it goes. See where it goes from there. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would agree. I think, I think nature is much less concerned with the things that we're concerned with, with productivity and outputs and results. And I yeah. think it's much more just, going with the flow. Yeah. After all, you know, another thing to put it in perspective, you know, you mentioned the timeline thing of how brief the the human history is. I mean, we're all aware we're just kind of floating around in nothingness on a rock. Like we're all aware of that. <laughs> Somewhere what, in the recesses what of a, our minds. We what are, a yeah. strange place to be. And we realize it and nobody's like... <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> no Wait one's right flipping there. out. Nobody's yeah. freaking out. Yeah. Everybody's totally fine with it. Um, but, but, you know, we're still... It's a mind fuck, dude. That it was, really is. It can't really is. Long. But it's... And we still find it, you know, vitally necessary to wake up and, and go to these jobs every day <laughs> to, to, to pay our bills, to pay some of our bills, you know, in this day and age. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Go to job one and then job two and job yeah. three and, you know, to pay some of our bills. Yeah. Uh, who are we doing that for? Who are we doing it for? Yeah. It's, it's not for me. It's certainly um, not. You know, it's, I, 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 one of the things I've, I've struggled with at, at uh, my, my current, my current employer, um, I don't have the same idea of work-life balance, I think, as anyone else working there. Um, <laughs> oh, you know, boy. I, I feel like, I feel like most people think work-life balance is, you know, just being able to have dinner with the family or something like that after you've worked all day. I, I'm like, uh, no, you know, if, 
if my daughter walks up to me at one in the afternoon and says, you know, hey, Papa, where does honey come from? Work-life balance to me means what could possibly be more important than that, than that moment? I'm going to close my laptop. I'm going to walk outside with her. I'm going to show her the flowers. I'm going to explain the bees and the other pollinators. I'm going to take as long as it takes to go through showing her this perfect, beautiful, symbiotic mm. relationship mm. that gets us the honey. And how, what could I possibly be doing at work more important than that? Mm. Mm. Like, I, I just, uh, I, I, don't, I don't get it. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like we're supposed to be here for that sort of thing and then to, to help out whoever we have the power to help out. You know, of course, there's going to be situations where, you know, you genuinely, you don't have it. You don't have what it takes, what somebody needs to help them out in a time of need. But, you know, whenever you can, I I tell the people on my team all the time, you know, it doesn't have to be like a, a major life event. You know, if it's important to you, it's important. I don't care if you are passionate about something I could care less about, you know, if you're big into video games and mm-hmm. the world championships <laughs> of that video game are taking place and and you need time to mentally prepare for it and it's vitally important to you by all means yeah take you know work whatever <laughs> work a flexible shift and get off earlier and get enough sleep and do what you got to do take care of yourself and what's important to you in your personal life and uh there there's just there's just not very many people yeah. with that mentality it's yeah, I get it, man. I, so I see a I see a connecting line here, and I think this is going to be fun because a moment ago we went on a tirade about I think we went from homesteading to meaning, and that just led us on the, you know, not nihilism, but for anyone listening who hasn't been really paying attention to any of the sort of uh, existential threats that we're facing, uh, may have sounded. A little overwhelming. The thread that I'm seeing, though, is a thread of care. And I think that a big part of that comes naturally to us as parents. You know, we, we, yeah, we see our kids, we see the life we're having to live, and we see the world around us, and we want to leave something wonderful for them. Just wanting to leave something better for our children um, and uh, then the way that we found it, you know, the silver lining to what we were talking about earlier, the awakening, the, the collective awakening. Do you think that parenting is one way that maybe we can start to create that change in the world? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's still an uphill battle. You yeah. know, there there's power structures in play that you know I don't know that you can undo just by <laughs> raising conscious children. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, I, I don't I don't know how to scrap some of the problems in our current system and, and start anew. Um, but, you know, talking about trying to be mindful and finding meaning. Um, I was talking earlier about, you know, that continuum of trying to find a place between everything, having this universal importance and nothing meaning anything at all. Yeah. Uh, the parenthood journey is just, brutal oh, in yeah. that capacity. Yeah. I mean, you, you you try to be mindful and focusing on the present moment. Um, 
but man, it re- it feels like you are faced with about 5,000 decisions a day. Yeah. And you're fully aware mm-hmm. that the way you react and the decision that you make doesn't end right there. Yeah. You are shaping the worldview of another person yeah. in a way that may impact them for the rest of their lives mm-hmm. and may impact the way that they shape the worldview of their children if they have them yeah. in the future. Yeah. So it's really hard <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to not be thinking yeah. about, oh, wow, this this decision right now, what I say right now, the tone that I say it in, mm-hmm. the the level of compassion and understanding that I have versus dismissal because I'm rushed and I've got a million things to do and I've got too much on my plate, that's going to have ripple effects for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's that's that's sort of, especially in this day and age, like we were talking about, where so much has been put on us to it to maintain that mindfulness and that awareness. Yeah. Um, it's so hard yeah. to be in the moment and not be thinking of the 10 million other things that you need to be doing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bills you've got to pay and the device in your pocket that's fighting for your attention and buzzing every 20 seconds to yeah. let you know that there's something important that you need to check. Um, and the other, the other people in your life, not just your kids, you've got a spouse you have parents and friends and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and other people that you care about that you yeah. don't have time for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. um, it is for better or worse. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes I mean, for better. So <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's so hard. And you know, I, I said it feels like you have five thousand decisions to make a day. Yeah. You know, if if you get four thousand nine hundred and ninety eight of them right. But you can see that those two that you fucked up really did a number on your little girl. Yeah. I mean, that's all you think about. Yeah. It's all you think about. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's uh, mm. yes, it is a way that I feel like we can shape the future yeah. world. But man, and it's it's really hard. H- how do you how do you say being mindful and being in the present moment? The reason I'm doing that is so that maybe I can, sh- you know, change the world decades or centuries from now. By definition, you know, you're not really being in the moment. Yeah, you're not really going with the flow. Um, you know, that's that's kind of how I feel. I, I feel that you, you you brought me on as as your your Eastern friend. You know, <laughs> um, the most Eastern friend I have. <laughs> um, you know, I would I would say you mentioned earlier we're we're kind of an egocentric ethnocentric sort of culture here. Um, you look at the way that we've, that, that meditation and yoga and things like that have gained a foothold in our society. Mm -hmm. It's so clear. It's so obvious that that is the case because how did those things start becoming popular? Well, they were presented to us as look, look at all the benefits you will receive from this meditation. Look, you'll be so much more productive at work and you'll earn more money and you'll be a a healthier person and less stressful and look at all the benefits you, you 
ego you will will see if you implement this practice for 12 weeks or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, you've already kind of missed the point, you know? Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. go into yoga thinking of, oh, good, yeah. months from now, I'm going to be healthier and lose weight and I'm going to have a... That, you've missed the point already. You yeah. know, the whole point of yoga is to dedicate time to being in the present moment and just soaking up the experience Mm -hmm. of what it feels like to be in a human body Mm -hmm. and uh, and recognizing that everything around you during that time also shapes the experience and makes it what it is and makes it the beautiful thing that it is. That's why, you know, when when you get to the end of a, a yoga practice, what do you do? You're supposed to bow to the other others that were there with you and say yeah. thank you, thank you for making namaste. that experience I what see, it was. Th- I'm saying namaste. I see the image of God. The image of God in me sees the image of God in you. Um, you know, I think if anybody here is having a hard time maintaining a yoga practice, maybe consider going back to the original intention of yoga, which was bodily prayer. Like I am devoting this time to God in me and to God in the world around me. And I'm praying with my body to that universal all-being power. Um, that might help you stick with it. <laughs> yeah. And and I say the same about uh, meditation, you know. Um, if you go into a meditation practice with the idea of some personal gain from it, you've sort of missed the point. You know, yeah. it's, you're supposed to come to this recognition that everything is one and you're just a tiny part of the one big thing mm-hmm. and you're just doing your part to make the one big thing just a smidge more peaceful and loving and compassionate than it otherwise would be yeah. by calming your mind down for a little while. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, I say that as someone who, as I mentioned, has never been able to establish a consistent <laughs> practice of either one. So I'm not saying this from a from a, a holier than thou sort of perspective, right. but it speaks to your point about our culture. That's the only way that we've been able to advance those practices here. You can't advance practices here by telling people you're doing this for the universe, you know, yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't have a benefit to me right. very soon, why would I, why would I waste time on right. it? You know, and, you know, and ironically, like, you know, we've learned and, and, and I've had to learn, this has been a tough one for me coming from Christianity. You know, I've, I heard Ramdas say it this way that, you know, the, the speck that's in your, that's in your brother's eye, the, that parable Jesus preached about removing the plank from your own eye so that you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We've always heard it preached that you've got your own sins, so you'd better humble yourself before you go talking about other people's sins. And that's there's validity to that. But there's also, hey, if you've got a plank sticking out of your eye, you're in pain. You've got a problem. You need to care for yourself so that you can then care for your brother. So ironically, there is self-benefit. There is self-benefit there is. in helping other people. There is self-benefit in, in seeing yourself as part of the whole and not as as the center yeah. of the universe, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I keep bringing it back to balance. There are elements of taking care of yourself that are vitally important. You have to be selfish from time to time. Um, you know, you're talking about obsession with meaning. You know, some of the, the self-exploration that I have done and the self-discovery that I have done, you know, 
don't like labels. That's part of the <laughs> part of the part of the yeah. Buddhism thing. Well, I I made my personal identity for basically my entire adult life. Oh, I you know I could care less about me. I'm just going to do whatever I have to do to make sure that my wife and my future children, and then when they got here, my actual children, happy and to make their dreams come true. And what you find is after a certain length of time of uh, completely neglecting and dismissing your own needs and wants and everything, uh, you become someone who can't do that. Yeah, You become someone that is unhealthy and dysregulated and tapped out, and you've got a short temper, and you're bitter and angry and resentful over over perceived wrongs in mm-hmm. the past that mm-hmm. really were you mm-hmm. you know thinking you were you were being a selfless person and doing the right thing and really every now and then you just needed to you know take a minute for yourself yeah. so that you're you know it's the oxygen mask thing on the airplane yeah you got to put your own on first or you're not going to be there for you know your little kid sitting next to you right um and so the uh, that's that's been another part of my struggle for meaning. Um, yeah. I, I attached far too much importance on those labels of yeah. husband and father, yeah. and that's not to say that you know we shouldn't try to be <laughs> good as husbands good and can. fathers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's you know it's the uh, it's the clinging, yeah. it's the clinging to the idea that that causes the suffering. That's one of the yeah. one of the Buddhist principles. Um, and I've, I've struggled with that and still am, you know, to this day, you know, it's, I'm part of the, part of the struggle with meaning is just identifying how I'm going to measure my own meaning. Yeah. Um, it's, it it would be nice if we could just say, you know, as long as I'm in the present moment and going with the flow, yeah, great. I am a meaningful person. I've had a meaningful life. Mm. That's hard to do yeah. <laughs> in this go, go, go yeah. society that it we're is. living in. It is. It is. I, I was thinking as you were talking that a couple of things that have really enamored me about Buddhism um, are one, that there's no real deity. There isn't. It's just yeah. the, the Buddha is not God. The Buddha is this just enlightened consciousness that that is in a in a man and is possible for every human being. I, I also love uh, one little um, concept I heard about a smile that was on a particular Buddha statue's face. That it was this very slight smile, and that it was called the smile of unbearable compassion, and that the idea was simply that. Upon looking into this like default meaning that is just all that existence is, when you look into that void, that just bottomless abyss of nothing but meaning and nothing but compassion, it's it's terrifying, but when you've when you when you've come to peace with it at, at last, uh, you begin to see the suffering that people are putting on themselves. Yes. That people are putting on themselves around you. And that compassion arises from knowing, in my opinion, um, from what I've heard and from that smile of 
unbearable compassion, it comes from understanding meaning as a default thing or not, or, and, and thusly even calling it meaninglessness that why that we're just here having an experience. Yeah. You know, I think that the, our obsession with meaning has robbed us of a lot of joy. Even Thomas Merton, the Christian mystic wrote that we need to, um, throw our awful solemnity to the winds, uh, that the, the things that are most trivial to man are perhaps most important to God. There you go. You know, um, and just join in the dance of what's going on out there in creation. So well, yeah, you, I, you brought up Alan Watts earlier. Yeah. Uh, I know his take on this. He's, he has said essentially um, a lot of our suffering comes from taking very seriously what the gods intended for fun, mm. for play. Yeah. Uh, he's even gone as far as to say, you know, you look up there at the stars and, uh, everything in our solar system and everything we we believe to be there in, in the other solar systems is is kind of shaped like a sphere. And, you know, it's kind of God's way of saying, hey, have a ball. It's, um, <laughs> it's, uh, we, it's, it's... Dad jokes on yeah, the podcast. There you go. Existential dad jokes. Oh, I love it. Um, it's, it's not intended to be this stressful very serious ordeal. I, we are supposed to enjoy the experience here. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, uh, I feel like we've, we've completely lost sight of that. Mm. We're, we're supposed to work ourselves into the ground for like the meaningful years of our life. And then mm. if we're fortunate enough to have saved up enough money over the you know, 50 years or so that we've, that we've been working. Well, After the, being taxed into the ground well, the whole time well, too. Yeah. Well, uh, guess what? Then, then once you can't really go and do all the things you'd like to go and do anymore, then you can relax and just enjoy things <laughs> until, uh, for those last little, those last moments before you die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. oh, it's, goodness it's, gracious. A, it's a crazy mentality. Yeah. I, d I don't know how we got wrangled into it. Mm -hmm. Like when when did that become a normal, acceptable right way to do this? Right. You know, it feels like a the campaign I was talking about earlier mm -hmm. loosed on to consciousness and mindfulness. Like you know, you 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 are going against the grain when you stop in that crowd of people walking down the sidewalk in New York, and you just stop and you turn and you look around. You take your headphones off. You take a breath, you know, um, we can take that image and we can apply it to all of this that we've talked about, the problem of just being a modern human being. And that's what mindfulness is for us, I believe. I think we can take, we can, we can make something, maybe not some ultimate meaning, but some union with what ultimate meaning is from life and begin to, to experience a more full and conscious reality, even in the belly of the beast, you know, where we are now. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you talk about turning around and, and being the only one not walking in, in New York city, um, makes me think of, I don't mean to be a stereotypical hipster here, but it makes me think of uh, the, the Nietzsche quote, something, I'm going to butcher it, of That's course, okay. but it's something to the effect I've of... I've butchered several on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so something to the effect of, uh, you know, and to, to those who couldn't hear the music, those dancing appeared to be crazy. 
you know, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tough going, going through life with the mentality that we have sort of developed over the years, because it's, it's pretty rare where we live and the interactions that we have, like it probably sounds insane to the people that we're working with and and doing business with on a day-to-day basis. Um, that, you know, this stuff that we're doing and this crap that we're making at work every day just isn't really that important (laughs) when compared to, you know, the very real things that we feel like we should be focusing on, you know, those children in front of us who are, are begging us to spend time with them for the young, the early years of their life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the nature around us that's just calling out our name Mm. every moment of every day, Mm. you know, um, it, it doesn't, it's, it's a, it's a very minority opinion and minority opinions are shunned mm. in, in in any society we've ever created. You know, in a very real way, just hearing how you're being present in your life, you know, we, my wife and I joke all the time that there's this meme that went around that said, what a spiritual awakening, what you think it's going to look like. And then the, that one half of the meme is like, you know, a lady down on the beach, you know, in, in the lotus <laughs> position, you know, with the sun set behind her. And then the next side of the meme says what it actually looks like. And it's like Chris Farley, like rocking in a corner saying, uh, yeah. I'm, like, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. You it's, know, it's a, com- <laughs> it's a complete nervous breakdown that is that's what that's what a spiritual awakening looks like it is it is literally like waking up one day and going oh my god like the first 30 years of my life like everything i learned was wrong yeah and how the hell do i get out of this and onto some other track now like oh god yeah it's very it's it's alarming. It's disconcerting. Yeah. Um, it's very tough. It's yeah. tough to go through, but um, that's what that's what loved ones are for. <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, and just being present to it, just whatever it is, you know, the, you talked earlier about noticing 5,000 decisions a day. I think so many people go through their parenting without even realizing they're making 5,000 decisions a day. So if all that awakening means is just beginning to be aware of the fact that there are those decisions, the fact that your actions are having real uh, effects on the people around you that ripple outward and beginning to awaken a compassion in yourself uh, toward that end, I think that we're at least beginning to do very valuable work by doing that. So, Yeah. Um, Similar to some of the things we said earlier, um, you can't really have compassion for others if you don't have compassion for yourself. Yeah. You can't really love others fully unless you love yourself fully. Um, you do have to give yourself some grace yeah. and you have to give others grace. Uh, you know, we, we've come to the realization that it, this is really hard. Just being a human is really hard. Yeah. And, you know, if you can't just look at any other person, drop all the labels it's it's not really hard to be a fill in the blank person. It's mm-hmm. just really hard to be a person. And if you can't look into any other set of eyes on the planet, 
with a little bit of compassion for the condition yeah. of being a person on the planet today uh, and and come at all of your interactions from that place, you know, it's going to be a tough journey. Um, yeah. And, and um, I struggle with that at times. Trust me. I, I, you can, you can ask some of the folks I work with. I've, I've really, <laughs> I've, <laughs> I have unloaded on some completely unwitting people yeah. at my job, yeah. even very recently. And it's all, you know, me, 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 look at all the things I'm dealing with and I'm going through and you guys, you know, aren't really doing anything to support me, 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 Yeah. you know, everybody, everybody's going through it yeah. a lot of the time. Um, and so... I, I do I do my best to uh, to to come at my interactions from that mentality, but um, you know, it's uh, it's not always easy. So, how do you want to wrap up, Jackson? What what, how, what do you want to leave everybody with, all the listeners? Um, great question. Uh, I I do feel like I've rambled as I tend to do. Yeah, that's what uh, I love about you. And uh, <laughs> I do I do want to make sure I come back to you know, some basics of looking at, looking at things through the Buddhist lens, since that's what you brought me here for in yeah. the first place. Yeah. Um, if I really had to whittle it down to the most succinct, most basic core tenets, I'd say it's probably two things, impermanence and interdependence. Those would be the two most basic core principles that I can think of. Yeah. Um, impermanence, by the way, um, I, a great example of that is what we're doing right now uh, for the listeners. This is day two of the interview. <laughs> uh, in the original, in the original conversation that William and I had, he asked me, you know, how do you want to wrap it up? And I was kind of depleted and overwhelmed and downtrodden, and I was basically just like, I don't know, I don't know how you fix this mess. Just forget it. <laughs> Cover blown officially. Um, yeah, yeah, but uh, but I I had a. Uh, I had a really transformative experience a couple of days ago, and I don't know if any of our, our listeners with children have ever experienced this before, um, but I got, two nights ago, I got slightly more than five consecutive hours of sleep for Ooh, the first time yeah. in many months and for, you know, probably one of maybe 12 times in the last five years. Um, oh and so I goodness. woke up just feeling like a new person. Oh, yeah. I felt like I had a greater capacity for, you know, weird things like like uh, like hope and positivity. <laughs> and so I, t I texted William and I said, hey, if you're not about to hit go on that episode, like I'd really love a do-over on that how to wrap it up question. Um, and I, I think... Uh, I know I've referenced uh, McKenna already in the conversation. He has a great quote that I try to live by that uh, you're under absolutely no obligation to be the same person you were five minutes ago. And um, mm. I think that speaks to that impermanence factor a little bit. Um, and I, I woke up and decided I was a more positive person and I wanted to... <laughs> I, I wanted that reflected in the, in yeah. the, in the final question here. Um that's beautiful. So, so that's a part of it. Uh, impermanence, just being, uh, everything's constantly changing. We, mm -hmm. we know that to some extent, everybody is aware, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're all going to die, that sort of thing. You can look back at pictures from 10 years ago and see the changes in yourself and everybody else. Everybody's aware that yeah. things are constantly evolving, but, um, 
it's it's on a more it's not it doesn't take years or decades for that to play out um every day you know the cells within us are are mutating and being mm. born and dying and the circle of life is taking place inside of us billions of times a day at a level so small that we don't even perceive it yeah and you know the same thing's happening on a global scale whether we're looking at the humans or the animals or the plants same thing everything's every single moment of every day we're having birth we're having death we're having growth and decaying and everything's moving and shifting everywhere in the universe as far as we know mm -hmm. the only constant is change uh and i think one of the ways that we see that um not reflected in our current society is the, the sort of uh either or black and white sort of mentalities on on every single topic <laughs> that comes mm -hmm. up these days mm -hmm. um and i would just say you know if you dig your heels in on anything and, and say, nope, I'm refusing to even consider that not just my answer over here on this end of the bell curve is correct and the one over there on the other end of the bell curve is incorrect. If, if you refuse to even consider, you know, shifting an inch into the gray zone, mm -hmm. you're literally working against the forces of the entire universe yeah. that is constantly moving and shifting and evolving. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's that's a place to start mm -hmm. is people just allowing for things like nuance and subtlety and gray zone in conversations and not going into a conversation with the idea that what they already believe is correct mm -hmm. and that any variation on that is somehow not just logically but morally unsound um, because what does that do? That creates a, oh, that person is is morally bad mm -hmm. and therefore less than me. And it's okay for me to be angry at them and mm -hmm. treat them like crap. Yeah. Um, so that would be a place to start. Mm -hmm. um, the, the other one, uh, interdependence. I feel like, I feel like our species has even more trouble grappling with, mm -hmm. um, at so many, so many different levels. Uh, I would say it's not just, you know, me and not me. You know, I know, I know I, I brought up the chair example earlier mm -hmm. in the conversation. We wouldn't say you were sitting there. Mm -hmm. If you take that conversation all the way to its end, you know, you can make the argument, uh, well, I just am. Even if you don't describe what I'm doing, I just am. And it doesn't matter if any of the other stuff is here. I still am. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, um, how do we confirm that though, right? We can, if we're in the room, even if you're the only one in the room, you know, you can flip a light switch and go, oh, look, I turned the light on, I must be here. Even if you don't have anything, anything like that to do, you know, you can tap yourself on the face or pinch your arm or whatever and go, yeah, I'm here, I'm here. Mm -hmm. But you still, I don't think we recognize that we still only feel that way because of everything around us. Yeah. It, 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 we have to have the surrounding environment to feel that way. If you closed your eyes and you opened them and you were in the void and it's just infinite blackness all around you, there's no stars off in the distance, mm -hmm. there's no light for you to see your hand in front of your face, even if you could still reach up and tap yourself or pinch yourself, the logical conclusion you would come to pretty quickly would be, wow, I must be dead. 
Mm-hmm. I must no longer exist. Yeah. There's nothing here for me to observe or to observe me. There's nothing here for me to act upon. There's nothing mm-hmm. here to act upon me. Therefore, I must be gone. Mm-hmm. We only exist because of everything else that's here around us. Yeah. And that doesn't stop at you know our epidermis, the tips of our fingers or anything. It doesn't stop at the room or the house that we're in. It doesn't stop in our city or state or earth or anywhere else. It, where, however far it goes, it's all one big thing. Um, and so I think, uh, I think the, the other place to start would be to recognize that this us versus them, this divide and conquer mentality that we have, I think there's a growing number of people out there that recognize the divide and conquer tactic that we're constantly using to separate groups of people. Um, we also do that with nature. We, you know, you don't, you don't throw your hazardous waste in the river and your trash in the ocean and chop down the rainforest unless you've been convinced that A, those things are separate and different from you mm-hmm. and not you, and B, they're less important than you. You don't mm-hmm. do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the notion that we are not part of nature, um, you know, Alan Watts, uh, and come back, coming back to some of the Buddhist stuff, he, he talks about uh, the, the phrase that we use in the West a lot, and you'll hear parents. You know, my parents said it growing up. Yours probably did. I've probably said it to my kids already mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, I brought you into this world. I take you out. <laughs> he, you know, he, he points out accurately, you know, that's not actually how it works. We're not brought into the world from somewhere else. We grow out of the world yeah. like a flower. Yeah. Um, we are made up of the stuff that's already here. There, mm-hmm. There's no other way to put it. We aren't, you know, nobody, nobody shoots a, a, a care package down from, from some, someplace <laughs> else with all the stuff that makes us up. We are made of the earth. Yeah. And uh, the fact that we have so much trouble recognizing that, uh, especially in our culture, cultures like ours, that places so much of the emphasis on the unique, separate identity. Uh, I'm, I'm a special, unique, separate person. Yeah. You know, people don't have trouble recognizing, yeah, I've got one driver's license and social security number, but I also recognize I'm made up of a zillion different parts inside of me, the, mm-hmm. the bones and muscles and tendons and organs and all the cells and all of that. But they have a much harder time saying yes, and I'm a tiny little piece of the whole universe that's yeah. just one giant thing, yeah. um, because that would diminish that the value that we place on the individual somehow. Right. Um, so I think stopping the, uh, the othering, mm-hmm. um, whether that's the people on the other side of the political aisle, the other side of some line that determines statehood or nationhood, mm-hmm. uh, people versus nature, like I mentioned, that sort of thing. I think that's another, another great place for us to start. Yeah. Uh, I would say, um, one of the one of the quotes I go to on this front, especially right now, where, where we have we have multiple ongoing wars in different parts of the world, and possibly others cropping up soon. Mm. Right now, can't believe it, man. Um, I I believe James Baldwin, who's who, he's one of my favorite Americans. I would say if there's an American that doesn't have a holiday that deserves one, I feel like it's probably him. Mm. 
uh, I, he's got a quote that I don't have in front of me, so I, I'm not going to get all of it right. But it's it's essentially, you know, anytime somebody tries to tell you that you are less important than them or they try to oppress you or whatever, just keep in mind it speaks less to your inferiority than it does to their inhumanity. Mm. And I, I think we've got to start there. We've got to stop thinking that it's okay to yeah. separate out these little groups of, of individuals that, that we've been convinced are different and less important than us and thinking for that reason it's okay to treat them differently and, and poorly. Um, I think I think we've got to come back to that recognition that uh, the human condition is challenging for just about everyone. You see billionaires that are depressed all the time with all everything they have, and you see you know homeless people that are just happy as can be, and everywhere in between. Um, yeah. The the circumstances are are less important. It's really hard to be a person on the earth. And I think if we can start there and look at every individual we come across and every interaction that we have from that place of compassion, because we know how hard it is for us a lot of the time. And we know, even though we don't know what the other individual is going through or has gone through, it's been really hard for them sometimes too. Yeah. Um, Just coming at people from that lens and that perspective rather than the, um, the other, you know, I, I I need to, uh, figure out how to get what I need out of this person, or I need to make sure this person understands that I'm right and they're wrong and, and move on, you know, uh, listening with an open mind and an open heart all the time. Uh, and allowing for the possibility that our current perspective um, isn't right or wrong, but could be it could be uh, more nuanced than that, and and uh, allowing for the possibility of uh, changing our perspectives. Yeah, I think those those would be uh, two places for me to start, and I hope for the. Uh, for those that are listening that genuinely have no idea anything about Buddhism, I hope that drives home a couple of the uh, the core points for them. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so a big part of Buddhism, just to play on this for just a second, Jackson, if you've got a little bit of time. Sure. Um, the the flesh in Christianity is this, this topic that comes up a lot in the writings of Paul. I don't know what Paul's last name is, but I know he's been coming up a good bit in your life lately. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, an interesting thing is that um, there's a guidebook that I've put together for a deconstructing Christian, and the flesh seems to resemble most closely the idea of the ego, uh, a big theme in in Buddhism and other faith traditions in the world, um, but not something Christianity likes to talk about a lot because... You know, I guess they don't want to feel like they're muddying the waters and letting too much external thought in. But Christ tells us to deny ourselves and follow Him, and um, to pick up our cross and to welcome the the suffering that comes from that. And there's a lot of contextualization that's necessary in that moment. But the flesh resembling the ego, if we could think on the power of of letting our letting go of ourselves in that egocentric way of following 
following Christ, following the universe into the thinning and effacing of our egos uh, so that we can begin to see our interconnectedness. I mean, you were talking about the importance of listening a second ago. It's really hard to listen really well and to be a good listener when you're identifying with a very, very concrete, mentally projected picture of yourself and you're just waiting to say the next thing and you're just waiting to, you're, you're ready to chop down rainforest, you're ready to, you know, become a, a, a CEO and buy a yacht and, and you know, use sweatshops to make your products. There's, all, there's no end to it, you know? So, so what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you think that that plays a part in um, this understanding of the ever-changing nature of things and in interdependence and permanence? Um, well, you, you know, you're talking about, uh, the, the chopping down of the rainforest and the using sweatshops to create your product and all of that stuff. Um, I think it speaks to, like I said, the, the interdependence. I, I think we've convinced ourselves that destroying those things that are not us in order to gain for ourselves is, is really destroying something else and gaining for us. Yeah. It's every if it's all the same thing, the destruction of the rainforest or or the the lives of those uh individuals in third world countries who are struggling and crawling in mines every day with the you know, at eight years old or something Mine like that. Mine lithium and whatever. It, it yeah. is it's not a destruction of something else. It is self destruction. Mm. It will eventually come back around to harming you. Yeah. whether you recognize it or not, um, because you, you, you are turning yourself into the destroyer, mm. right? Even if right now, uh, it looks like, you know, you're doing something good for you and you're going to gain from this. I, I think a lot of, I think a lot of folks who, uh, go that path and mm. make their fortunes eventually, come around to discovering, oh no, look what I've done when it's thrust in their face. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of folks that go to war have trouble with that. Yeah. You get convinced, you get convinced by your government or your tribe or whatever it is that, uh, these other people over here that I've never met are evil because they think differently than we do. And they're a threat to us for that reason. And, and you go engage in battle and you kill and destroy. And, and a lot of folks, not just from here, but everywhere in the world who, who come back from war struggle a whole lot with the things that they've done mm -hmm. when they recognize, oh, wow, like, look how easy it was to convince me to go do all of that. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, yes, you, maybe you were victorious, but you had to kind of turn yourself into a monster in some capacity to gain your victory. Yeah. Um, yeah, one common thread among those, those folks is those were people. Those they, were they, people. They start saying that. Those were people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not collateral damage and, and whatever terms we try to put on it. Those were people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think you, you're, you're hearing some outcry of that right now, like I said, with the multiple conflicts that are going on, um, the loss of civilian life. Why is that any any worse right. <laughs> than the loss of of the lives on either side right. Right. who are who are uh, actively and intentionally engaged in the battle? That's just as bad. Yeah, um, I, I I just I think the the use of violence um, 
against others to to gain for ourselves. Um, I, I think it's a race to the bottom, essentially. Yeah. Um, and I I think a lot of people realize that, um, but I just it's hard for me to to say there's a good side or a bad side in a war. Yeah. You know, it's people on both sides, um, risking and losing their lives when, you know, I think very few of them really want to be doing that. Yes. It's, it's, uh, a few people at the top running things, playing chess with one another on a global scale. And, um, they have the means to, to go and convince as many people as they can yeah. to, uh, to do their dirty work for them, yeah. unfortunately. I, I, did, I did realize while I was thinking this through um, the other day and, and doing some writing about it that um, there's potential. If, if we have an ego individually that we can begin to identify and begin to more closely align that ego with um, this undercurrent of just flowing being that's that's going through all things, then I think there's potential for us to do it at the collective level too. And, um, you know, I think we have a collective egocentric culture. We have a collective American ego. Yeah. Um, I think nations do that. Uh, but with how globalized we are, there are definitely plenty of risks and plenty of things we're seeing that are kind of scary about globalization. But there's also potential on the flip side of that coin for some realization. So that's where my prayers are going. And um, I think, I don't know, I, I, I'm interested to see what happens in the next 10 or 15 years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if it is really as easy as it appears to be to convince people that it makes sense to go kill others, you know, it has to be just as easy if we really put our minds to it to convince people to just love one another. Yeah. To care for one another, to show compassion to one another. Um, it just doesn't seem to be in the best interest of, you know, the the global economy that we have created, um, where we don't measure the health of our nations based on things like that. The health of the nations are based on GDP growth. Yeah. The health of the companies are are based on earnings growth, not on the health and well-being of the employees that work there. Yeah. Uh, the nations, like I said, GDP growth, not on how well the individuals are doing. What's the what's the collective consumer output? You know, how yeah. much are we making, and how much are people buying? And if we can come up with new metrics of how to grade how we're doing and look at the world in a, in a different way from that perspective. Um, I, I think we'll be headed in the right direction. Yeah. That's brilliant. It's, it's unfortunate. You know, we've, we have for whatever reason, you know, currency <laughs> in this day, currency for a long time was sort of tangible, you know, it was gold coins. It was, mm-hmm. it was spices and food and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, even weapons, you know, tangible mm-hmm. things. Nowadays, currency is just a complete fabrication and of our own imagination. That and can be shut off at the government level if, yes. they, if they see fit. Yeah. And we have somehow, we have been totally okay with entering into this agreement that priority one, the most important thing, the thing that we all have to wake up every day and figure out 
is how do we go get enough of this imaginary thing <laughs> rather than let's take care of the actual, real, tangible things in front of me, like the people that I care about, right. the people in my family, the people in my community, mm -hmm. uh, the nature all around me. Yeah. All of those things are, are seen as secondary or tertiary things. Mm-hmm. Above, uh, you know, behind this imaginary thing that we've completely fabricated out of thin air. Yeah. Um, so I think to your point, it, it's going to take sort of a, not just a, a national societal shift, like a species level shift of mindset. Um, it, it doesn't have to be back. We, we, we think of it, oh, well, you know, what do you, we're going to go back to hunter gatherer. Uh, it doesn't have to be that, right? Um, but why? Why is that that we place so little significance on the people in our lives or the earth around us, as opposed to the currency we have to go make right. to buy more things, right? And who's really benefiting from that in the end? Who yeah. really benefits from the status quo? You know, yeah, it's worth it's worth asking that question. Well, all right, Jackson. I love you, man. I love the um, I love the result that all of this uh, has created in you. All these thoughts, and um, I just I thank you for coming along. Thank you for sharing that with with these people. I'm, I'm really glad that they're going to get some exposure to a real life Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, one other thing I'll say, uh, just in case. I know this is a primarily for Christians, you know, hmm. I do want to point out there's not really, uh, you, I think you mentioned there's no deity in, in Buddhism. Right. Yeah. There's no like swearing vows or signing papers of conversion or anything like that. You could be a Buddhist Christian, a Buddhist Muslim, a Buddhist Jew, a Buddhist Hindu. It's not a, a declaration of anything. Yeah. It's sort of a lens to view things through in the same way that you can be a Christian who views things through the Catholic lens or the Baptist lens or the Lutheran lens or any of the others. Yeah. Um, you don't, you don't have to give up, you know, your current belief system and, and convert. You just, right. it's just a, a slightly different way of, of viewing things. And it's a different lens to look at things through. And, um, hmm. So I'm, I'm not trying to sell anyone on anything or uh, I'm not doing mission work or anything like that. <laughs> oh, don't worry about that. I, I personally feel very um, compelled to try to bring on as many varied voices as we can here. And, um, you know, if you're out there listening and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. Please stay, stick around. It's This is supposed to be a universal thing, figuring out how the Christian voice is just one voice among many and... Um, and the, this message really ultimately from every source is coming out to the the same conclusion. Those mystics all pointing to us all being one. So I love that perspective. Well, thank you, Jackson, for being here, man. You're, you're the best. I love you, buddy. Love you too, William. <laughs> <laughs> There you have it. I think uh, I think we've adequately addressed the problem of man's obsession with meaning, man's search for meaning. That sounds vaguely familiar. I think there's a book. Actually, no, come to think of it, Viktor Frankl did a much better job with his book, Man's Search for Meaning, than Jackson and I just did. But uh, still fun to talk about. Definitely check out that book if, you, uh, if you're interested in delving more into this topic. 
Uh, today's meditation, what we're going to do is we're going to do a visualization exercise um, and we're going to think on ourselves and our nature as both universal and uh, as one with all things as we are a tiny, tiny little part of everything. So um, what we're going to do is right now, like we always do, find a quiet place. If you need to pause this podcast to do that, um, if you're in a quiet place right now, go ahead and just shut your eyes for a moment. Let's go into our breathing and focus on the breath. So just breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. In through the nose and out through your mouth. And let's continue doing that. You don't have to do it so deeply that it's a labor. Just just deep enough that you're becoming centered. If we focus on the breathing, the reason we do that in meditation so often is because it just helps our mind to stay present to what our body is feeling. So in through the nose and out through the mouth. One more time. In through the nose. Out through the mouth. Now, as you continue to breathe and just focus on the presence of your breath, I want you to make space in that presence for the realization of the enormity of the universe as we know it. And the universe as we, all, as we know it is already a, a very elusive reality. We know it's there, we know it's real, but we also know it's expanding and we also know that it's um, multidimensional and that the things that we see in front of us might be more than they seem and often are. Um, and we are indwelling a human body in the middle of all that and having this experience together. It's an amazing reality. So make space in your mind as you breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth for the enormity of the universe. Just be present to that enormity. It's, it's pretty overwhelming. All right, now, now that we have a focal point, let's envision all of the stars and galaxies that are filling up that universe, um, just billions upon billions of them and, and light years of empty space between them and extreme heat and extreme cold and stardust, these amazing these amazing realities present all throughout this giant living universe. Let's allow ourselves to focus on that for a moment. All right, now let's take it down to our own galaxy, the Milky Way, with our solar system, uh, with our sun, and with the planets around us. And down to planet Earth, that pale blue dot, so beautiful, just hanging in, 
in space. And, and here we are on that blue dot. Let's breathe in through our nose. Just accept that reality as you breathe out. We've already zoomed our focus down so, so narrow compared to the rest of the universe to focus on Earth. Now let's focus on the nations of Earth and the people of Earth. And as we zoom down farther and magnify with that lens in our mind's eye, let's get down to you, where you are right now. Wherever you are, at work or at home, in the car, wherever you are, on a run, you, we've just zoomed down to you from the universe level down to the pale blue dot down to you. Breathe in and breathe out. Now, while a lot of Western thinking would probably have us stop there because you are you, man, you know, <laughs> let's keep going. Hold a, hold a finger out in front of you like we did in another exercise recently. Hold a, an index finger on either hand out in front of you and just look at it. And I want you to think about the cells in your skin on the tip of your finger. You are being regenerated every day. Cells are dying and new cells are being born and taking their place. And, and you are a new creature regularly at intervals. Those cells in that finger are performing a job to, to make up and comprise the human being creature that you are right now. But those cells, even those cells, we can zoom down farther. We can zoom down to molecules and we can zoom down to atoms and we can zoom down to the subatomic realm and down to quantum entangled particles and all sorts of crazy realities just in the tip of your finger while you're looking down at it. And every little atom and every little cell is playing a crucial role in making you present to this moment in, in, in embodying your incarnation right here on planet Earth. Breathe in and breathe out in gratitude for these amazing forces at work constantly that put you here on this planet, that make you you. Breathe in gratitude for that. And now, I want you to think of yourself like a cell in your finger. I want you to realize that your collective experience of the cells that make you up of the bacteria that, that help you digest your food, that, that help your gut biome to function properly, of the gray matter in your brain that helps you to have thoughts, that creates a mind, that creates an, a thinking animal. 
those cells, you are one of those cells in the body of the universe at some analogous level. That's you. You're part of the entire thing. Breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in gratitude for being a part of this thing with the rest of the universe. Breathe in and breathe out. And as our final concept for gratitude, let's be grateful for the realization of consciousness inside us, inside all beings in the universe. Consciousness is this gigantic ocean that permeates everything and from inside it, existence emerges. I don't know if you've heard of the observer effect in uh, science, but it's been documented that an observer present in an experiment is in many cases directing the result of that experiment. Photons will behave differently in some of these experiments depending on whether they're being observed or not, how they collapse um, into form uh, is dependent many, at, at many times on whether or not an observer is present. Your observation is at least in some way responsible for the reality around you. Your consciousness is a powerful thing. And it's a shared stream that we're all in together as children of God in this universe. And it's a beautiful thing. Let's be grateful for consciousness. And let's take a moment to be grateful for the soul. The soul is like a part of a hologram. Any part of a hologram contains within it the entire image of the hologram. Or like when Christ said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you've ever seen a fractal, there's a larger pattern with smaller patterns branching off from that pattern. But those smaller patterns infinitely repeat the larger pattern. You are a piece and a part of God inside yourself. Your soul is directly connected to that master consciousness and it's invincible and nothing can take that away from you. And that is the peace that we have, the gratitude ultimately that we can have realizing our part in all things. So let's breathe in that gratitude and breathe out. Breathe in and breathe out. And the beautiful thing about a realization like this is that you don't have to go become some savior or messiah for everyone else because if you recognize this about yourself, then you recognize this about everyone else around you. There's no room for one hero and one savior in this story because we're all connected that way. So breathe that in and breathe out that gratitude and that peace. The image of God in me bows to the image of God in you, friends. Amen. 
Go in peace. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ground, a podcast from Cathedral Project. Don't forget to go to cathedralproject.com and in the top nav under resources, you can there find PDFs and eBooks to help you along your journey. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash cathedral project. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends, and we will see you next time. Yeah.